And I did, I had this really strong sense of who I was. And I, I remember being a kid and thinking, yeah, you know, what a great thing. I'm working class. This is a brilliant, you know, God, could you imagine, could you imagine yeah. if I wasn't working class? How terrible that would be. And I really... <laughs> So you felt really totally empowered. empowered. Yeah. And my mom, yeah. and I suppose because my granddad was such a, no, he wasn't enlightened really. A lot of the miners were like that. They knew, you know, they, they did because there was a strong trade union and it was a club mm. shop. They did. And a, and a lot of our social life was around the trade union movement and the pit. You know, we did have this sense of, uh, you know, a wider solidarity. Hi, and a warm welcome to season four of Brown Don't Frown podcast. I hope you're well and safe wherever you are. BDF's first episode went live in October 2019. And since then, BDF has brought three seasons and over 40 incredible guests and their stories straight to your ears. I hope you've been able to learn from them as much as I have. I am your host, Tanya Hardcastle. Brown Don't Frown spotlights the experiences of a diverse range of women and brings new perspectives. I hope you finish each episode feeling more rounded, energised and inspired. Welcome everyone to another episode of Brown Don't Frown. Today's guest is Dr. Lisa McKenzie. She is a working class academic, a lecturer, an ethnographer and sociologist currently based at Durham University. She has written and spoken extensively about class war, social inequality and leftist politics and more recently begun working on a new publication entitled Lockdown Diaries of the Working Class, which we'll be talking about uh, later on, no doubt. Uh, Lisa, I'm absolutely delighted that you're joining us today uh, and a very warm welcome to you. How are you? Thank you. I'm really well, actually. Uh, sun shining. Yep. Um, and you're going to hear the dustbin man come past in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nice. Um, it's quite interesting how we became acquainted uh, back in, I think, 2016, uh, when I started my master's at the LSE. Uh, I really wanted to secure a place on a very popular uh, module that you were teaching at the time on class and inequalities. And I guess I've been following your work ever since, really, um, on Twitter and watching your interviews. And yeah, I find you a really fascinating person, uh, especially the very niche academic area in which you work in. I don't think I've found, I've come across any academics doing similar work. So yeah, it's a real honor to have you uh, on board today. Um, And I think to kick off the discussion, it would be really nice if you could tell us a bit more about yourself, um, about your background, uh, growing up. And of course, your journey to becoming a working class academic and sociologist. Uh, what motivated you? Well, first of all, tell you, let me just say, I remember your uh, sort of frantic emails to me when I was at the LA <laughs> going, I need to get on this course. It was a bit of a nightmare trying to get on that course, actually. Mm. It was very, very, very popular. Yes. Uh, which is a good which is a good thing. Of course. Um, but it was always oversubscribed, and I do remember your frantic emails. I felt terrible that you couldn't get on it. <laughs> That's fine, um, yeah. But you know, I'm making up for it now. Yes. So I said, you know, I'm going to give you a one-to-one. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Nothing better than that, really. Yeah. So why did I get involved? Uh, really, I mean, what motivated me? It was an accident. I'm going to be totally honest now. It was a complete accident. Um, you know, I come from a 
mining family uh, yep. and a mining community in North Nottinghamshire. Yep. The town I come from is called Sutton in Ashfield. It's, it was, it's not now, it was a heavily, heavily industrialised area. Um, within my house, within sort of 10 miles of my house, there was about 15 coal mines. So everybody, you know, all the men worked at the pit. Um, but equally, and again, this is this always gets forgotten, or actually people just don't care, I think. There was thousands of textile factories making clothes, knickers, tights. Um, virtually the whole of Marks and Spencer's knickers was made in the area that I came from. Um, so there was full employment for men, mainly at the pit, but also there was full employment for women as well. Um, and that was in the textile factories. Um, and so really, even though it was a heavily industrialized area, it was a very working class area. Mm. Um, it, you know, one of the things we didn't suffer from really was an identity of who we were, because obviously yep. that's through our work, um, and unemployment. There was always job, you know, there was jobs. I'm not saying all of them that were well paid or, you know, there were great jobs to have. Um, but we, we had, a, you know, there was full employment. So, you know, I grew up in this community that had a very strong sense of itself. You know, it was working class. And, you know, my granddad was a miner and my dad was a miner and all my uncles were miners. And, yeah. you know, we knew we were we knew we were miners. And that, as my granddad used to say, we are the best people. I mean, he used to tell me that we're the best people in the world. <laughs> I, you know, miners yeah. are the best people because whichever country you live in, and and also which was dead interesting then as well is, you know, in the in the past, coal miners um, and also uh, factory workers, they did know about their counterparts in other countries. So, you know, my granddad knew that there were Chilean miners. Um, you know, he knew that there were South African miners. He knew that there were the German miners. Um, and he said, you know, wherever there are miners, there are good, strong people that were keeping the lights on. Sounds like the you light- had a really strong sense of like solidarity and community. Totally, uh, yeah, and identity. Really, yeah, really did. And and I didn't realise that for other people they don't have that. <laughs> I really didn't. Know, I didn't mm. know that. Um, and I did. I had this really strong sense of who I was. And I I remember being a kid and thinking, yeah, you know, what a great thing. I'm working class. This is a brilliant. You know, God, could you imagine? Could you imagine yeah. if I wasn't working class? How terrible that would be. And I really, <laughs> so you felt really totally empowered. empowered. Yeah. And my mom. Yeah. And I suppose because my granddad was such a. No, he wasn't enlightened, really. A lot of the miners were like that. They knew, you know, they, they did because there was a strong trade union and it was a club mm. shop. They did. And a, and a lot of our social life was around the trade union movement and the pit. You know, we did have this sense of, uh, you know, a, a wider solidarity. Um, my mum was also a trade union rep. Um, she worked in a factory. Uh, she worked at Pretty Polly making tights. Um, and she was a trade mm. union rep. And obviously she had that same, you know, mentality that we're working class people. We're good people. We're strong people. We look after each other. You know, we had yeah, value. Work we had, hard. Yeah, work hard. Look after each other. Yeah strong families, strong communities. Obviously, it was true, but there was also other sides to us as well. 
Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, growing up in that community, that's who I was. That's where I got my identity from. And that's what I, I suppose, a sort of, that was, that's the motivation that I've had all my life. I never realised mm. that I was worse off than other people until mm. <laughs> uh, I got to about 16, 17. And you know, when you, you know, when you're a child, have that yeah. reckoning. Do you know when you're a child, <laughs> you know, you are completely yeah. surrounded by family and community. And when we're all sort of saying very similar things, um, you know, that's who we were. You don't well, realise what's out there, really, do you? Not no. always when you're a kid. No, you know, I mean, you and especially if you come from a very sort of, I don't know, you know. Uh, More community. Yeah, yeah, but also a community where yeah. everybody is pretty much the same. You know, yeah. um, everybody's yeah. dad worked down the pit. Everybody's mum worked in a factory. Everybody lived in a council house. Everybody bought their clothes off the market. Um, yeah. You know, we, we were very, you know, people, we, we had very, very similar lifestyles and, you know, very similar values. You know, we went to the same pubs at, at night and, you know, obviously we, are, we, are, we had individual preferences, but we very much worked as a proper community. And then, you know, at 16, mm. you start to go out into the world and then you start to meet other people and see other things. Um, and then one of the things I think what really shaped me what really started to you know me to realize that this sort of working class utopia that I lived in um was not actually real was in 1984 so I was about to leave school I was 16 and my dad went on strike as a minor yeah and then in Nottinghamshire um almost like the whole world came into our town because, you know, the Metropolitan Police came, the media came, you know, the world's media came. And all of a sudden, you know, we were confronted with not just outsiders, but also a wider view of who we were. Yeah. You're being challenged with your lifestyle, your worldviews and just your existence, Uh, really. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, and, and there were different narratives about us. So obviously, you know, I'd not really heard before, mm. you know, that, you know, I, I think even, even down to where I went to school, there was, you know, these are, these were, it was, there was very poor schooling, actually very poor schooling. I mean, when I look back now, um, and I know that things haven't changed that much, is teachers openly said, you know, you don't really need this education you know, there was lots of debates, even when I was at school, about whether or not we needed that last year, because, you know, our education was only really needed to 15 or even 14. Mm. Um, you know, there was sort of, in, there was national debates about that, you know, whether working class people actually needed um, any qualifications at all, because we went into the mines, or we took on apprenticeships, yeah. or we went to factories. So, but we didn't challenge it. But, you know, one of the things about us is we didn't really challenge that narrative either. Yeah, you, know, you were happy good. doing that. Yeah, you were quite Yeah, we were, of... we were happy doing it. It's just that there was, you know, I lived in an area where I didn't know about, I didn't know there was universities. Yeah. Uh, you know, there was, and the only college that there was was sort of training colleges for 
hairdressers and electricians and that sort of thing. So there's a, there's a strong preference for maybe like learning a trade as opposed to doing academia. I don't know anybody. I mean, from my school, I don't think anybody went to university. Yeah. I don't think, I don't think one person went to university. Nobody ever talked to me about university. I never heard of it, really. Mm. Ever. Didn't know what it was. Didn't hear about it. Um, you know, when I went for my careers interview, uh, they just said to me, which factory are you going to work in? Um, they, they said they could send me for some interviews at some factories. And I said, well, actually, my mum works at Pretty Polly. So I'm going to go there. Happy to went, go there. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I did at 16. You know, I left school and went to the Pretty Polly and worked with my mum. Yeah. And what does the, the you always have a very strong affinity with uh, being working class and you're incredibly proud of that, which is a really incredible thing to see, because from what I've seen with a lot of my friends who are working class, um, who ended up going to university and then got professional jobs, they're so desperate to like come out of that narrative. They don't want to be associated with it. Um, and it's so nice to see someone who it doesn't feel that way. And I wanted to ask you what your what the prefix working class, which you put before your professional title as an academic symbolizes to you well I suppose I would have never thought about saying I was working class until I came into a very middle class uh, environment <laughs> yeah because <laughs> I'm not really you know I'd, obviously from the minor strike onwards I did know that mm. You know, there were there was sort of serious challenges to our narrative, who we were, you know, from the minor strike, we became the enemy within, um, you know, I worked in a factory at the time, you know, it was very common for, you know, newspaper articles to refer to working class women as factory slags. Um, so I knew I did know, um, you know, more through my teenage years, I did know. And I can't say that it didn't affect me because it did. It really did affect me. Um and I think that was mainly because of the miners' strike, because immediately after the strike ended and the pit started to close, the places that I had lived and grown up in and the people that were my fat family were immediately, you know, there were new narratives about them, which they were backwards, they were stupid, they couldn't move into a modern future, you know, they their politics and their values were old-fashioned, you know, and this was in the 80s when sort of late 80s when you know sort of wealth and greed was very fashionable and I came from a place that really didn't get involved in that so therefore they were seen as very unfashionable so as an 18 year old who wants to be unfashionable um exactly so yeah. yeah so I, you know and, and so I completely understand what it's like for younger working class people that you know that leave their communities yeah and, and, going and want to, to shake it. off the image yeah of course yeah. Why, why? because it's not a positive image mm. the positive image I got was from the community and the family which mm. was fine when you don't leave that <laughs> yeah but, so, yeah but the minute that you you know you start entering into a wider world and obviously after the 1980s we had to because the work had gone all that all that um sort of stable work that kept us there yeah and also you know there, there were very there were other things happening in those communities as well which you know when you came out of them you started to realize you know that that there were sort of very positive things about them but also very negative things as well um mm. they were closed communities uh they were sometimes hostile to 
different ideas and different views mm. um, but the narrative within sort of the mainstream media has always sought to sort of vilify the working class yeah. and it's it's so much more than just about economic privilege or familial wealth it's about the culture and the status and yeah the intellect and things like that that they always pick on um and I think um, it's actually got work and actually I think over my lifetime it's become more host- far, far more hostile mm. so when I sort of entered university as a 31 year old Mm. because I didn't go to university as a young person which again has made a massive difference to my story yeah Uh, you know because when I went to university my son was 10 11 um I was married I was already I was living in a tight community uh I'd moved out of the coal mining community by then and I was living in uh on an inner city council estate in Nottingham yeah um I'd left uh, in 1987 again because the work was going it mm. became very very miserable places um and I'd met my future husband whose family was Jamaican oh wow and, yeah you know, and, and, and I'm what was that like yeah well I'm going to be completely honest that was you know that was very tough because yeah the community yeah. that I came from was very white mm. very white very working class very these are the ways that things are done um, and I was doing something else. Yeah. And I suppose there was also, you know, in the 1980s, 1970s, 1980s, there was a lot of fear and prejudice and racism. With around, migration. Yeah. Yeah. Around black communities, there really yeah. was. Um, yeah. So not from my immediate family. Uh, my mum, you know, she was a trade unionist. They did, you know, not them. Mm, I, yeah. I, you know, they didn't. They weren't really bothered either. They were more bothered that I was going to leave. Yeah, the community. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They would have rather my uh, my boyfriend at the time come and live with us than mm. me go to Nottingham. But um, that could not have happened. He would have been the only black person in the town. And, you know, even my dad, my dad, who was a minor, said to me when I was pregnant, he said, Lisa, you've got to take that baby out of this, this area it's not going to be oh it's not it, yeah it, not, not and he didn't say you know he said it in a kind way yeah said, yeah of course yeah he said yeah. you know I hear the way people talk yeah and I don't want that I don't want the baby to be hearing that mm. uh, whereas my mum was sort of like no no I want you to stay I want you to stay yeah so you know when I was pregnant I moved out of the mining community and I moved into St Anne's in Nottingham mm. which was the innocence community which was a very very mixed community Jamaican very still working class council yeah. estate yes yeah but a much more mixed community mm. uh, and I became very much part of this very mixed community then mm. which you know was very similar actually to where I come from because it was a lot it was about family it was about community it was about you know the, all the things that I'd known it's just mm. that it was you know it was more global really um, yeah I mean so, you know yeah so that's... I went to university so I went to when I went to university at 31 you know I I'd got a community I'd got a family I'd got my own family I'd got my own mates so I was going there completely for myself really um, and I went to university because you know my mum died in a car accident really shocked me Oh, that's devastating. So so sudden. 
yeah really so sudden and it really shocked me and I thought what am I what can I do with my life yeah um and so I'd always kind of thought that I wanted to do something in the community still you know I was still working in the factory at that point mm. um and I thought oh, really you know and I thought perhaps I could be a social worker because you know I do know women who have become social workers mm. so I enrolled in an access course uh to be a social or to do a, an access course in social work while I was on the access course um I came across a book about St Anne's where I lived it was written by two researchers at the University of Nottingham mm. called Poverty Forgotten Englishman um and I did not know that universities wrote books about places where I lived I really <laughs> I did not I did not know that I did not wow. know that yeah. And so when I when I um, read that book, and there's also a film that goes with it as well, which was filmed in 1968. Oh wow! I was just like, right, I want to do this. Mm. So instead of being wanting to sort of go on and do a social work course, I actually ended up at the University of Nottingham, which is the posh university. Yes, yes, I've uh, heard. <laughs> yeah, it's the posh university. <gasps> I'd never been to even though I lived here, I'd never been to the university. So I ended up there doing sociology completely by accident and probably through ignorance. Because when I got to the university, I was the only local woman there. I was the only local accent, <laughs> apart, apart from like the cleaners and the women that worked in the canteens and that sort of thing. Yeah. The only person with a kid. Um but, and I, I was fully aware of my difference, but I wasn't phased by it because I was there for me. And even though this sounds horrible, you know, my, from my undergraduate degree, I couldn't remember one person who I was there with. I made no friends at all. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I didn't know anybody. I, but at the same time, I didn't really care. You weren't bothered. Yeah. You just wanted to get, get your work done. I was enjoying um, it. I, I was loving it. You know, yeah, I, I, I'm so glad that you had a positive experience. Um, yeah, yeah. Positive experience with no. So you know, I was 31, so I didn't need a social life. No, no. And I didn't need friends because I'd got them. <laughs> you um, had them. You had a busy life. Yeah, and I was just sort of you know learning and reading and going. Oh my god, you know everything I'd suspected about my life. It's true. <laughs> As you're growing up, like you said, you know. If you only work in a factory, it's because, you know, you didn't try hard enough at school or, you know, it was your fault somehow. Exactly. Working class communities are associated, you know, with being lesser than, burdens. Yeah, and, and failures, failures. Failures, yeah. Yeah. I mean, when, when I started reading the book, so yeah. it said, actually, there's this system, which means it's almost impossible. I was like, well, I knew that. I already knew that. But, I mean, but why do you think that in Britain, particularly compared to all other countries, why are we so inherently prejudiced against the working class and why are we so inherently defined by class in the UK? Um, I mean, there's like deep historical. Yeah. That. I mean, yeah. you know, it goes back hundreds of years to land ownership and feudalism. Um, yeah. Yeah. Feudalism. And but I think the British monarchy. Country, yeah. <laughs> Veronica, which is still here, the British class system is very successful. It, it is. Extre it's extremely successful. Yes, yeah. It's, you know, apart from probably the Indian caste system, uh, yeah. it's probably the most successful 
divisory yeah yeah system that there's been um and it works it still works today so there are you know people benefit from it and I think that's one of the reasons why it continues yeah it continues because it it really does work yeah it's not in our imagination I mean it doesn't work for the working class necessarily but for for, for the but but it doesn't need to because you know you've got a big section of the middle class that it also works for as well Mm. so you know and one of the things that I've learned over the years you know when I was growing up in a mining community the only middle class people I would have ever come into contact with would have been teachers and doctors Mm. social workers and of nurses and that sort of thing um and so the class system works it really works for people um it doesn't work for the working class yeah which is why we now which is why we have a working class because the working class sort of was formed out of this class struggle. So yes. I read E.P. Thompson, uh, The Making of the English Working Class. And that's a really great book if you want to sort of understand why the working class exists. That's a really good recommendation, actually. Yeah, I, m- I might buy that. And, and have Yeah, it, it's a great, it is a really good book because what he argues is through history, you know, all these, people that had very different lives you know they were if you come from a different village you know you could you may as well have been on a different planet yeah um, you know 150 200 years ago but they found I suppose you know what they found is they found that they got things in common and that was their relationship to work the relationship to the economy and their relationship to the other classes and so therefore that formed them a class within themselves so they became the working class and then they became the working class through class struggle mm, um, class war. And, yeah and so that as you know that has happened now for over you know for sort of the beginning of the industrial revolution mm. but, but in popular culture it seems that working class communities are satirized like one example which always comes up is little written but yeah, it, it sort yeah. of seems like other issues like racism, you know, homophobia, ableism, those sorts of things. That, I mean, they should be and they are condemned. But then it also seems that ridiculing someone for their lack of education or for their class is something that we are able to do without sort of any impunity or challenge. Like it, it seems to be fair game. And it seems yeah. that the worldview, um, you know, the whole whiteness cisgenderness that sort of thing is seen as the ultimate privilege uh, and so that is really difficult to contend with and it's, it's made the class um, discrimination in in Britain I think a lot more complicated yeah yeah and I, and I would say it's it's even wider than that I mean you know mm-hmm. we think Europe we think that in Europe you know there's almost you know there's no class system but there, but there definitely is mm. um it's just that the British class system is the best one. <laughs> it's the best one. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, it's the best one because there's definitely, you know, there are definitely working class people in France. Yeah. And there are definitely middle class people in France and there are definitely upper class people in France mm. and everybody in between. Um, you know, the same in Germany, the same in Holland. Um, you know, class does really intersect with race mm. um, and migration. Mm well so you know working class people you know are are a varied you know they're a varied class of people there are they are migrants that have first come you know working class migrants yes yeah of course you know they come straight into the working class 
So we've never been, so the idea that somehow the working class, the British working class has always been white is, you know, it's, it's a nonsense. And again, it's a narrative that's, that's made around us. I think it's to divide communities yeah. as well, isn't it? So, I mean, what did you think the recent Sewell report? I mean, it was, it was heavily criticised, but it did identify um, the defining roles that class and sort of geographical inequalities played in people's life chances. And I mean, you've, I think you've already made this point that, you know, does class trump race, ethnicity and gender when it comes to discrimination or it's part of the same struggle? Um, I mean, by way of example, I'm thinking of like wealthy minorities that I know who are middle class, um, South Asian, black communities who uh, might have gone to private school. Um, and and for them, the fact that they went to private school is, is a much greater defining factor than their race. Um, yeah. Is there a denial among like wealthy ethnic minorities about class privilege, perhaps? I, d- I don't know. I mean, I'll be honest, I don't really know. A lot of, I don't know a lot of middle class people, you know, apart from people I work with. Yeah, I yeah. I don't know middle class people on a social level, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. So I, don't, I don't know if they deny it. I don't know if there's a denial about it, but I think from them, yeah. But I think there's definitely a national narrative denial mm. about, about class. Definitely. Yes. Definitely. I mean, because, you know, it's almost. Like the, the, the class, I mean, class definitely has been talked out of the national debate completely. Mm. The Sewell report was an interesting report. Um, I didn't actually agree with it. And I thought it was, you know, I thought he was wrong. Um, and, I, and I thought mm. it was, I thought it was a real home goal, actually, by the Conservative Party. Um, oh, yeah, definitely yeah. point scoring. I, yeah, I get what they were trying to do, which they were trying to perhaps widen the debate to include class, yeah, race, region, yeah, yeah, and even and even um, uh, generation as well. Um, mm. So I get what they were trying to do, but you know it was a complete home goal, really. I mean, to to sort of say that there is, I mean, in, to, to sort of deny institutional racism is. I mean that that it's, it's very tone deaf, isn't yeah, it? I mean it's deaf. not in touch with tone, what's happening. It's tone deaf. Uh, it's a denial and it's not true. You know, it, it's not true. My you know, my son is mixed race. Um yeah. you know, of course I'm fully aware that there is institutional racism. You know, today there is institutional racism. Twenty years ago there was institutional racism, thirty years ago, fifty years ago, you know. There's, it's still there amongst us mm. but so therefore trying to deny racism over classism or trying to deny classism over racism I mean this is where we this is where the problem really is I mm. think the, the current problem really really it's, it's is the lack of intersectional awareness so, yeah how yeah they both I mean, overlap People talk about intersectionality a lot, yeah. but I don't think they actually understand it because, mm-hmm. you know, they intersectionality, you know, it is about thinking through um, the way that class, race, uh, you know, physical ability, gender, mm. um, you know, and all manner of other things interconnects. Yes. Does that mean we should have a race to the bottom in victimhood? No, 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 absolutely definitely not. not. No, definitely, 
definitely not and that's the problem that I think with identity politics yeah I completely almost, agree with you yeah you know it's like being black is be, is worse than being being white and if that's and that you can't say that as a standard statement mm. you know, being middle class is worse than being working class again you can't even say that no, because you, you know I've just spent 10 minutes telling you that my early years were very were positive. fantastic yeah yeah were very positive um and so you know they, they were different and my our, our outcomes our life outcomes are very different which is about inequality yes um but it, you know, I think valuing us uh, as moral beings is, is actually, you know, that's part of the class system. And that's, I think, where we are at the moment is when you start taking away the opportunities, life chances, what actually happens to working class people and you replace it with some sort of moral accountability, who's good mm. and who's bad. Yeah. That is, I think, where we are today, because it's so much easier to accept inequality if the people who are not doing well are seen as morally inferior. Exactly. Yeah. And, and the narrative that, around, yeah. you know, us versus them, the middle yeah. class versus yeah. the working class. It's, it is, you know, I've already mentioned this, it's propped up by the mainstream media's depiction of those classes. And a lot of what I started to see now, and I think I mentioned this um, among some of my traditionally working class friends um, is a sort of inverse snobbery. So some of them might have gone to a, a decent school and then got a professional job and now benefit from this class hierarchy. But many of them still are quite, you know, they they really have a lot of solidarity with the working class and sort of look down on the middle class despite being a part of that community. Yeah. Um, and I mean, why, why do you think this happens? Do you think it's part of a class war narrative? Yeah, I think class is just class is is such a dominant narrative in the UK. It's mm. it is it is absolutely everywhere. You know, yeah. it, in all our politics, it's in all our communities, um, and yet it's the one thing that people don't want to actually talk about. Acknowledge it. Yeah, they don't actually want to acknowledge it. So you know, Brexit happens. It's about everything but class. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely about class. Yeah. You know, uh, you've got it is about work- class. Yeah, work. You've got working class communities now voting Tory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, That's about Red class. Broken. <laughs> yeah, it's about class. It's about class. Um, you know the football thing the other day. You know the Super League. It was mm. about class. Yes. It was. You know, and again, but we don't want to talk. But we just don't want to acknowledge it. And for me, it is because the class system allows unearned advantages for some but at the same time there are undeserved disadvantages and so it is you know it is a game where some benefit because of others disadvantage yeah absolutely and because of that it is almost impossible to talk about it's really easy to talk about in working class communities because people talk about it all the time constantly Mm. constantly you know that people know exactly what's happening to them but when you get into middle class institutions for example the universities it becomes really difficult to talk about and when those universities are responsible for research and reports um and it becomes impossible to talk about class, 
then I think we've got a problem. I mean, we do, in universities, we've definitely got a problem, a class problem, definitely got a class problem. Um, and the universities are doing everything to not talk about it because to talk about class in a university means to talk about the way that universities are almost like the key indicator in, re in reproducing class inequality in this country. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that actually leads me on to my next question about um, your recent project that you've launched, uh, Lockdown Diaries of the Working Class, uh, with a small group of working class creatives through a Kickstarter. Um, and I, I, what I understand is that the diary entries comprise stories from 38 working class people in the first month of lockdown. I think it would be fantastic to hear a bit more about the publication and your motivations behind spotlighting the illustrations mm -hmm. and stories of these communities and, and how um, the listeners of this podcast might be able to get involved. Well, this came about obviously when we when when the pandemic happened and lockdown happened, everybody well, you know, everybody was like, Oh my god, what is going on? Um yeah, you know, I mean we all kind of lost it a little bit, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, even the government, every you know, you were watching I was watching the news thinking these people don't know what they're talking about. No, people but, were lost completely. Yeah, people were were definitely lost. And so what I did is I, I went to where I always go to is that I started thinking about you know my own people working class people and I started to think about what was happening to them you know what was happening to my family members what was happening to my community you know what was happening to people who were losing jobs what was happening to people who last week had run out of money and so this week has got nothing and got no way of even getting out of the house so I started to really think about what was happening to working class people. And I realized very quickly because of the way the narratives were forming that their own voices would not come through. It wouldn't, they wouldn't make it through. Mm. So if you remember the early days, it was, you know, there was a lot about panic buying and, um, you know, there was a lot about people buying toilet rolls, um, stocking up, Yeah. You know, Lots of narratives about the NHS and clap for carers. And baking. Yeah, baking. And and I realised that, you know, there were still people getting on tube trains, packed tube trains yep. to go to their jobs at six o'clock in the morning. Um, there was still people working in supermarkets, terrified. There was, you know, there were still people on universal credit that perhaps had been using food banks that now didn't have access to those. Mm. Um, you know, people who needed mental health support, families with children. You know, I realised that there was a whole group of people that voices would not come through. Yeah. You know, and as a sociologist, I sort of started to think forward. Right, what's going to happen in a year's time? Because in a year, I thought in a year's time this will be gone. I was mm. wrong. You know, I'm not I'm not that great a sociologist because I thought this would be over. <laughs> no, it's far from over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I was like, in a year's time, there'll be, you know, inquiries and there'll be government discussions. And I know whose voices will not be there. Mm. So I thought, right, OK, how do I do this? You know, I'm an ethnographer. Normally I talk to people. I can't yes. do that now. No. Um, and I thought, and I remembered... Uh, I watched a film with Victoria Wood in it called Housewife 49 and it was about wartime and it was about the uh, mass observation studies and the government actually during wartime I don't know if you know this asked the general public to write daily diaries and then they kept them they've still got them 
Oh, it's fascinating. I'd be love, yeah. I'd love to hear some of these stories. Yeah, and there's a film that Victoria Ward starred in called Housewife 49, because that was her diary. Mm. Uh, oh, wow. and, you know, and, she, and so basically the film is about, you know, her diary, what she wrote in it. And it's just so good. And I thought about, you know, the way that this sort of, she was a middle class, lower middle class housewife that was very lonely and, uh, you know, and the, the sort of the plight of women at that time, her voice would never have been heard above the war. No. But because she'd written a diary and because somebody had read that diary and then somebody had decided to make a film about that diary, you know, that 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 woman's voice came through. Um, and I thought, well, this is what I, I want to do this. Mm, it's a really nice idea. Really, and I really thought, good idea. Yeah. And knowing, you know, knowing how I felt, knowing how we, uh, a lot of people felt, I thought, mm. keep it to the first 28 days so people don't get fed up with it. Um, I also said to women with children, you know, do me a five day or a six day diary telling me about homeschooling, because, again, everybody was under so much pressure. Yeah, they were. And some of them who had to work as well and look after yeah. their children simultaneously, yeah. like so I can't I, imagine how hard that so must I be. So I put a call out amongst uh, working class people that I'd worked with before mm. and also new people came forward and I ended up with 39 diaries in the oh, end. Okay uh one one and, and it was just incredible because I didn't know what to do with it I've not done this sort of research before <laughs> so I just, I just set up a Yahoo Google uh account said uh, a Yahoo account Gmail account and I said to people you know just send me a diary every day to the Google to the account to the email and people did and so when I read them back it was sort of dear Lisa Oh, um, you know, and yeah. I've done this today and I've done that today. One person was not good uh, on email, so they they actually wrote longhand, shook, photographed the writing, and sent the picture through email. Oh, um, that's lovely! Yeah, another person sent it by text because they didn't have email um somebody else just sent me pictures you know people really did do what they felt they could do mm. and it really comes across in the diaries um I got ethical clearance from the university because at the time uh, there was a lot of controversy uh from other academics actually that believed that you know nobody should be doing research at that time okay um, so mm. I I did get ethical clearance, um, you know, asking people to write a 28 day diary, I thought was manageable. Um, and this was, so this was a year ago, really. Um, mm. No, it was mainly through April. Um, mm. I tried to get pots of money from the academic institutions and the research institutions. No one seemed to be interested in working class diaries, really. Mm. Um, you know, it was almost like in the grand scheme of COVID, and I knew that this would happen, which is, was the point of the project. The whole point of doing it, yeah. 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 You know, in the grand scheme of COVID, are, you know, 28-day diaries from working-class people stuck at home, you know, is that worth giving money to? And actually, they decided it wasn't. So I sat there and I thought, well, I can do, the, uh, you know, a very bog-standard piece of academic research with this, which is going to absolutely lose all the care the love and the passion that came through in these diaries they were incredible nothing like I've ever I've done lots of research and I've never known such deep 
honesty and connections mm. through these diaries. And I thought sometimes words are not always the best way. No, you can express and yourself in so many different ways. Yeah. And, and, and actually the diary writers showed me that because they sent me lots of doodles and yes, they sent me pictures and songs even. Um, and so I thought, right, you know, one of the, one of our things that has been lost in history to working class communities and to other minority communities, the Black Panther movement used to use graphic novels and cartoons um, because they understood and accepted that not everyone could read and write really well. Mm. The old labour movements and the old trade union movements of the past in the UK, in, in England used to use cartoons, doodles, pamphlets, you know, um, in order, because again, they realised that people didn't have all, all have the same educational levels. And I thought a graphic novel is such a radical thing. Yeah. And it's, and it's something that the academic world don't, doesn't usually engage in. Mm. Now, I knew I wouldn't get any funding for that. So I thought, right, I'm going to do it myself. So I started a Kickstarter. It started two weeks ago. I need £12,500 to publish the book and to pay the artists. Mm. All of the artists are working class. I have six artists, five of which are, are young women, uh, all working class women. Um, and their graphics are incredible. Just I'm blown away by them, actually. Oh, wow. Yeah. They will be paid because working class people, especially working class creatives, are expected to do far too much free work. Yep. I'm um, work, yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not that person. I'm not going to do it. So that is what the 12 and a half grand is for. I'm not going to take a penny. I'm not going to, you know, this is completely for publishing costs because I'm self-publishing it. Yep. And for the artists themselves. Uh, the stories... And the artists, when they come together, are going to be incredible. I mean, I'll yeah, just give you I bet they will be. Yeah, I'll, I'll just give you sort of one example of, um, you know, a woman. She lives in a council flat in Nottingham. Uh, she was on her own for the whole time. Um, and a neighbour across the road, an elderly neighbour, was really struggling to get his food delivery. I don't remember if you remember in the beginning of the yeah. lockdown year it was almost impossible to get food deliveries yeah it was so no you know she, available. she was phoning him and saying are you all right and whatever and he was like yeah yeah I still can't get my delivery and he waited he managed to get his delivery um and he was like really pleased he's got all his food and everything and then about but an unbeknown to her he'd got covid and unbeknown to him he'd got covid as well oh my goodness and and he died in his house about three days after the food delivery came. Oh, my God. So she wrote in her diary, you know, how Brian had died and how terrible it was. And she says, I'm sat here and all I'm worrying about is all the food that he's bought going off in the fridge. Oh, no. And, oh, no. Yeah. You know, and, 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 and what a shame he waited all that time for that delivery and he didn't yeah. get to enjoy it. Didn't get to enjoy it. Yeah. Oh. And, and I just thought, when I read that, I just thought, that is such a working class family yeah it's just a working class way of thinking yeah very much so that she's worried obviously she's upset by and then later Mm. on in her diary you know she goes over and she digs all these plants up in his garden because obviously it's a council flat you know the council will be going to clear it out and giving it to somebody else Mm. and she knew how much all its plants in his little garden meant so she her and the neighbors are going in at the cover of darkness 
digging all his plants up and replanting them in their oh. own gardens. So his plants live on. <laughs> what a beautiful story. And the thing is, Lisa, yeah. without your um, publication, that story would not have been told. It would have been forgotten. Yeah, of course it would. It wouldn't even be important. I mean, people now might listen to this and go, so what? People was dying. It's like, yeah, but that's the concept. That's what happens when people die, though. Exactly. That's, that's how a community can, comes together. Solidarity. Yeah. yeah. And so and I thought, words are good. But that would be a beautiful image. Yeah. That would be a beautiful image. And so, you know, anybody that's out there that, you know, my social media pages are full of the, the artists and the illustrators. And, you know, there's so many be- these beautiful stories. There's a story. Uh, so about- is that is that story being illustrated as well then? Yes, yeah, 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 oh, yeah. Okay. That yeah. story's being, in, in, uh, you know, another woman who lives on her own, who's got a grandchild. Obviously, she couldn't see her grandchild. So she's looking at, and every day the little girl, because again, they live close to each other. Mm, yeah. As working class families do, they live on the same estate. Uh, the little girl who's seven cycles past her grandma's house every single day and grandma knows that she's going to do it so she's looking out the window and the little girl shouts don't die will you (laughs) (laughs) and she does it every day that's amazing (laughs) so grandma don't die today (laughs) oh wow this woman's written that in her diary you know you know my granddaughter's got rode past on a bike today. You know, she's told me not to die again. Um, <laughs> so authentic. Yeah, and I just, you know, these are fantastic, mm. real, you know, sort of small experiences of what it's like to be working class. Yeah, you know, so like- forget forget about the sort of clapping on the doorsteps and all of that because very few people wrote about that stuff no yeah exactly I mean I, I'm trying to think back to you know I, I'm now thinking you know in hindsight it would have been nice if I kept a diary in the first few days of lockdown and yeah. compare that to how we feel now you know in another yeah. our third lockdown and how sentiments have changed yeah um, yeah yeah uh, um yeah so so you know it's a I think it's a beautiful project it really yeah. is it's, it sounds it's like it's one of my favourite things I think I've ever done. Yeah. Uh, and it's... Incredible. You know, mm. And it, it, you know, and I'm asking people to show solidarity and support me and mm. give a quid. Yeah, <laughs> and so I mean... make the project so much better. Yeah. It will, have been, it will have been built and written and drawn and created with solidarity. Yeah. And you can um, be rest assured that I will also be donating to this fantastic cause as well. And um, I'm going to move on now to a question that I'm, I've been anticipating and really wanting to ask you to get your view on, um, because this podcast centers around women, their experiences uh, with a touch of feminism from an intersectional lens. And I wanted to ask you whether you describe yourself as a feminist, a why or why not? And as a working class woman from a traditionally um, small region of UK, what does the concept of feminism mean to you? Oh, that's, that's a good question. Do you know why that's a good question? Because when I first went to university as an undergraduate, I really didn't know what feminism really was. <laughs> and, I, and actually, I hated it. You I hated really, the term, yeah. I, hate, I really hated it. I was like totally against it. Like, you know, I was against it. I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm totally against feminism. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. It was because in the strike, in 1984, in the miners' strike, um we used to have lots of outside people coming into our communities you know mm. to 
sort of show us solidarity or to fundraise for us or to just come and look at us as well. So, you know, there was sort of the wider left movement always wanted to come in and have a look at us. Mm. So we used to get people like the Green and Common women, you know, come. Uh, we used to get feminist groups from Cambridge University come um you know and they were like showing solidarity with the women and all of this so the first time I'd ever really met middle class feminists was in the minor strike and I was 16 and I just couldn't that was yeah that does not sound like a good setting at all to be introduced to feminism I was like who are these people you know I thought they were scruffy and dirty You know, you know, I was 16 and in mining communities, you know, young 16 year old girls, you know, we dressed up, we went out, we put makeup on, you know, we wore high heels, we danced and, you know, these sort of young, they're probably only a few years older than me, came into our communities and they were at university and I remember the Cambridge feminist players came and they did us this play and they only let women see the play. And so straight away, it was like, oh, what's this about? You know, men aren't allowed to play. And, and I remember my mum, when I was 16, I was kicking off. And, uh, and I was like saying to my mum, I don't want to see this play. I don't want to go. And she was like, you go in. You know, these are our guests. We treat guests nicely. We're polite. And I was like, I don't like these people. I don't want to go. But I was made to go. So I sat there and they did this like strange thing of, like like a piece like some sort of abstract play that I would have never understood at, at 16 I don't mm. think anybody would actually and it ended with sort of uh, these women with black all over their faces and miners helmets on sort of writhing around on the floor going on about sort of feminist solidarity and women's solidarity and then at the end, they all stood up, these four women, and they stood up and said, solidarity with miners' wives, solidarity with miners. It will be very soon, and women will be working down the pit in equality. Hmm. And I remember, and we just, and all the miners' wives just sat there like... What is going on? <laughs> what is this? You know, bearing in mind, our communities had fought for about 60 years mm. to stop women and children going down the pit yeah exactly <laughs> and there, there was nothing we didn't see anything sort of fair or equal about you know women because women were not allowed to go down the pit mm. and for good reason yes um and I'd been winding my sister up my sister's about seven or eight and I'd been winding her up all day about these feminists are going to come and get her and uh when they said they were going to like just stood up and it was quite a scary play because they would like miners helmets and they were talking in low voices and uh and when they said you know soon women will be working in the mines you know showing their strength and solidarity and feminism and my sister heard that she's about nine and she like stood up and she screamed you know mom don't let the feminists put me down the <laughs> so, so you had a very warped sort of perception of like what feminism was yeah, and it was yeah, just about people making a lot of noise for no no reason I didn't understand. I didn't understand because, you know, working class men and women work together in communities and uh, and families, and that was how it had always been. And there were set roles for men and women as well. Yeah, and there were very set roles as well. You know, I mean, in the miners' strike, women used to do all the food and all the the the, uh, the 
breakfast and the kitchen and the mm. food and stuff and the men did all the picketing you know so it's very very traditional roles mm. and so when I went to university I obviously started to engage with it in a different way I still struggled with it mm. and probably still struggle with some of it a little bit now because feminism has it's a very of, middle class yeah and it's very thing. sort of university it's been sort of held in universities yes so it has so it becomes very middle class but yes. I tell you what, what I found I think when I was an undergraduate I found bell hooks yes yeah uh, and I found black feminism yes yeah and yep. that spoke to me yes because yep. they Same spoke here. about they yeah. spoke about class and race uh bell inequality yeah yeah that's bell hook poverty yeah i'm actually looking at her book now uh where we stand class matters which yeah. is a fantastic book yes and again yes. where she says don't worry if you know we don't write books about feminism because we tell stories exactly yes and it, and it was from uh those feminists that I really started to understand storytelling and narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so important. And that's your yeah. whole starter program is all about that as well. So yeah, something to remember. And, that, and my first, you know, what my book and all my research is about storytelling and narrative. So yes. it's the stories yeah. we tell about ourselves and then the narratives that are created by others. Exactly. And Bell Hooks um, absolutely shouts that from the rooftops. Yeah. And she said, you know, and one of the things she says is it's okay that we perhaps don't write everything down. It's okay that we don't write academic books. You know, it's all right that we write fiction or novels or that's how you just, tell your story though, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Or we tell novels. stories or we yeah. actually sit down and talk to people. That is feminism. Yes. And so that is how I, yeah. that's how I understand my feminism. Yes. Um, and that is a feminism that I really hold dear. Yeah. Because, yeah. because that is really about sitting with each other as women and understanding each other. That there, and our that there are, yeah, that there are stories that need to be told. And there are people that don't ever get to tell them. Exactly. Women, I mean, this know, exactly why I start the podcast you know is just to tell those stories those narratives which are very often forgotten or not brought into the mainstream so people don't understand them and they can't relate to them or they become very prejudicial against certain women who are from you know minority backgrounds who have who aren't middle class um and so their association with feminism whatever it might be is about storytelling so yeah Yeah. I I completely agree with you I mean Um, when I wrote my uh, book Getting By which yeah uh, was about women in on the council estate where I lived in St Anne's in Nottingham that is all about women telling each other stories yeah perfect example yeah women telling each other stories on how to get by yeah how to survive how to survive on a council estate yeah yeah how to survive as being poor how to survive being a single mom how to survive the benefit system mm. how to survive take you know the school system yeah I mean I mean I know at the moment there's lots of sort of you know bigging up of schools but I'll be quite honest you know most school experiences for working class children and families are horrendous yeah I mean yeah mine was <laughs> very negative I don't have yeah. any I don't have any good memories so <laughs> they're horrendous they're actually horrendous and, horrible 
and that narrative about you know schools and school teachers being these sort of incredible places actually that's not really no. a working class experience no no it's not um, yeah and that's an interesting point that you make there because when it comes to social mobility like which you've spoken quite a lot about um I mean you've taught at universities for many years including you know at some very elite institutions like the LSE for example yeah. um and from your experience and particularly through the lens of being a working class woman do you believe that universities are genuine places to be educated or do you think they are stomping grounds for you know networking among the elite and privileged um is there a sort of certain snobbery around or an obsession in the UK um with higher education which sort of feeds into the whole class mm. narrative yeah I mean all, all of it really I mean yeah it, it, yeah uh, it's all of it I mean is it a place of education yes they are they definitely are I yeah mean, got, yeah you know I didn't get my ultimate education there no it was part of my education yeah you know, I the biggest part of my education came from my upbringing, my background, the trade union movement, you know, life. Um, but the the way that I now articulate it, I did get that that sort of confidence from the university. Yeah, same here. So, yeah, it's a life yeah, experience, so, isn't it? Yeah. So that so that mm. is perfect. I think that's what universities are supposed to be for. Yes. But as you've quite rightly pointed out. For many, that's not what they are for. What they mm. are for is for status and symbolic power, mm. networking. Um, I mean, it's so sad that so many students, actually really good students that can come from any background, unfortunately don't get a decent education in a, in a university mm. because the, the, the push is for the degree at the end. Yeah, it's and about the, having that certificate, isn't it? Yeah. And it's from particular universities as well. I mean, I worked at the LSE. Mm. I taught sociology at the LSE. And then uh, when I left the LSE, because I, you know, I was only on a temporary contract there, mm. I, would, I would have never got the real job. Um, right. Okay. Yeah. I went to Middlesex University, uh, which is also in London, and mostly a working class, actually. Mostly my students were overwhelmingly working class black and ethnic minority students mm. and lots and lots of black women mm. um, and they were being taught by me exact same things as the students at the LSA at the LSE yeah yeah and I, but we but I knew and they knew that their degree would not be worth the same as the LSE degree, yeah. Despite yeah. the fact it was both sociology, both New London universities, and I had taught both students, mm. and, and we all knew that, and we all knew the reasons why. Mm. And so, that's not really that's a system that is recreating and reproducing an unequal system, whether so, that is yeah, that, that whether that is about class or race or gender or actually the intersection of all of that mm. because you know my students who were black working class women uh I had a lot of black uh, of uh uh east asian european uh, east asian muslim women as well young yeah. girls yeah who were you know, the first in their family to ever go to university um and they all knew you know we all knew we knew that 
their life, you know, they, they were doing fantastic things at university and Middlesex was doing a fantastic job. But the fact is, is we all knew that they were in an unfair system and they knew it. So really, I mean, education has sort of really failed to be the great social leveler that it claims to be. You know, if you go to university, get a decent job, you're going to be at the top, you're going to have made it. But then it seems like the privately educated still dominate, you know, the leading professions. And you've been you've been quite a vocal opponent of social mobility. Um, Do you you think it's ineffective? Uh, and, And do you think aspiration can be a bad thing? Well, I think it's a lie. I don't think it's. You think it's. It's. I don't. It doesn't exist. Yes, I don't think that social mobility is a bad thing. I just think it's a lie. It doesn't exist. It's not Mm. true. It's not true. It's just not true. It's a myth. It's a narrative that's made up in order for us to continue the class system. Because while you've got people, you know, well, I think about all the different students that I've taught, and I think about the narratives, the different narratives. So, you know, my students at Middlesex University their narrative was yeah perhaps I just didn't go to the best school and you know and uh you know my house was lots of people live in my house and it's really difficult and you know I had to take a few years out because my mum was ill and you know and and so therefore yeah I'm not going to do as well as people at the other universities because it's my fault (laughs) so that is the common narrative for working class women Mm. or working class women and in particular, actually, working class uh, women of colour, um, because that's what that's who I taught at Middlesex University. You know, full of life and interest and you know curiosity and anger. Yes. But, yeah. but the overarching narrative that they wouldn't do that well in life because of something that they had done mm. was still there. When you work at a a more elite university like Durham University or the London School of Economics, the narrative from the middle class is very different. I work work really hard to get here. Yes, I might have gone to private school, but (laughs) I still have to work really hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The pressure that comes with going to private school is unbelievable. Uh, And And my dad had to work really hard to pay those fees. He, you know, we never saw our dad, which, and all of this stuff might be true. Mm. I mean, it probably is true. I'm not denying any of it. But the narratives are very different. So one narrative is about working hard, deserving, and being entitled. And the other one is about working hard, but somehow getting it wrong. You get it wrong. It's the lack of confidence, isn't it? Like having yeah. not having that self-assuredness that a lot of um, more well, privileged people have. Well, it's the narrative doesn't back you up. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, so the thing is, if I say, I mean, you know, I say I had a really rubbish education, you know, which is why, you know, now perhaps I'm, you know. I, Are you making I off for it now? No, I mean, well, not really, because, you know, it still matters to me because... Yes. You know, when I write articles, journal articles for academic journals, I still get comments back from, uh, like, because we get comments back on our journal articles when we send them in. We send them in anonymously. And Mm. I still get comments saying, you know, this person needs to, you know, it seems that this person is not not English and they're English. Oh, my God. (laughs) You know, and their grammar is so bad, they need to get a better editor and all of this. Because... 
I don't have that formal education. I still don't know really about, you know, grammar. We can't all be, you know, polished like the privately educated, can we? No, no, no. <laughs> that is the standard. Yeah. University, and you can only get that through mm. one route. Yeah. So yeah. In order to get your academic paper published in an academic journal, and that's the only way you can actually get jobs and promotion in the university, yeah. you have to have come through that, that system. And if you haven't come through that system, you've got to pay people to edit it for you, or you've got to, you know, rely on other people to help you. You know, it, it's a different, you, you have got so many different hurdles. Mm. Um, and so it's, so for me, obviously it's still, you know, nothing changes that much. I've got a strong accent that's often used against me. You know, I remember when I first worked at the LSE, a group of master's students made a complaint about me because they said they couldn't understand my accent. Oh, my God. That's, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm not really surprised, actually, that they that they did that because that's, yeah. And this, these are the sorts of things, you know, that you regularly come up against, you know, when you are Prejudice. working, when you are working class and you find yourself... Um, you know in a middle class space you're always less than always always, you always feel out of place don't you like yeah well you and and you know what that's the that's what that you always feel out of place Mm -hmm. why do you feel out of place because you are yeah. You are I mean my it's entire not- year at the LSE that's how I felt like <laughs> I did not feel yeah. like a lot of things I just could not relate to a lot of the students it's not that you right. felt you didn't feel feel that way you were yeah exactly and that's the difference because when you just feel it's something about you as an individual mm. you were out of place I was out of place I'm still out of place so therefore I go in I'm making terrible blunders terrible mistakes I don't know what I'm doing half the time because you know I'm learning on the job every because I'm not learning just to be an academic Mm -hmm. I'm learning to negotiate their world absolutely yeah you just got to try and um mold yourself to their I don't want to and the thing is with me is I don't want to yeah no exactly so, Why at the, should you? so at the same time I'm trying you know I know I've got to do all this molding I'm, resist- <laughs> I'm resisting it you've got to resist I've it got- yeah I'm resisting it and that is causing great conflict for me and then and obviously all the people I work with as well yeah. because you know it for it's the whole class- it's, the, it's an expectation isn't it of, of assimilating like you have to assimilate otherwise you're going to be out of place so you do it well you are of- you- but, but you are out of place. And that is my, I suppose, my point here. And that's why I call myself a working class academic. Mm, yep. Because I'm saying to people very clearly, I am out of place. And you know what? You can say whatever you want about, you know, uh, widening participation or all of the other stuff that you do. Working class people at the university are out of place. Unless... They are working in the canteens or doing the cleaning or working in, uh, you know, non-academic roles. Mm. And as you said, this is why the class system still works. Like this is why it prevails, because people are meant to be designated within their box. They can't come out of it. They're not allowed. And that's why yeah, it continues. Yeah. It, it works. It absolutely works. And that means when you are, doesn't mean that working class people can't be academics because they can. It means that working class people, when they do become academics, they are out of place. Mm. 
Mm. And there's, there's no, you know, that's a fact. When working class students go to an elite university, you know, they are out of place. Mm. They are out of place. They are, they are not in a space that, that it's not about being welcoming, but they can't, they, it, it doesn't fit for them. They, they're learning, they've got to learn everything new. Exactly. Yeah. You it's know, just... I've got students at Durham University that are having to go through this, that they're like in a collegiate system. So it's like Oxford and Cambridge. Oh yeah. Yeah. They're, they have to do this thing called meticulation and I don't even know what it is. <laughs> is it some sort of ritual to like? Yes, yes. Them... I have to put the gown on and go to Durham University and go to the, the cathedral and sort oh, of do right. something. And um, imagine coming from a you know a working class background from <laughs> Durham, you know, and you come from a mining community, and you know you've worked really hard, and you've you you know, and you and your family are dead proud that you got into a university like that, and then. They say, right, you've got to do this thing and you've got to wear all these gowns and Yeah, it must just feel so alienating. <laughs> like, yeah, and you yeah. don't get and you don't get any instructions prior. You so you just have to just do it without actually knowing what it is that you're doing. Yeah, yeah. and you have to pay about fifty quid to rent the outfit. Oh, bloody hell. <laughs> um and, and, and this is in with the first few weeks of you starting university. Yeah. You know, so there's all this stuff. very overwhelming yeah it is it is isolating and, and you know and and one of the first things that students say at Durham University to each other and the LSE and at Nottingham actually the three universities I've worked at not at Middlesex University one of the first <laughs> things that they say to each other is well, which school did you go to yeah now that is not a question asking you what school wild you I, I hope no one ever asks me that question because the school that I went to doesn't even exist anymore so yeah, but you. But I imagine when you was at the LSE, you did. Uh, perhaps as a, as a postgrad, you didn't hear that. But as an undergrad, uh, you would have heard that. Yeah. Which school did you go to? And that is, it's a it's a question which is not asking you about your school. It's asking about your social status. Exactly. Yeah. And it's ingrained, obviously. If you're a young person, eight, eighteen year old, asking that very serious question, that means it's been preordained yeah, you know by your you, family. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and so you've got working class students, and I and I know that because they tell me this all the time. They just say what school they went to. They go, "Oh yeah, I went to, uh, you know, Teesside Academy," and they just tell it. And but that's not the question. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? And they and they, then they realise that they've they've done it wrong. They've done it wrong. But yeah, they've done it because and you know they just go, "Oh, which school did you go to?" And they go, "Oh yeah, I went to Teesside Academy or whatever," and you know. And then a few weeks down the line, they realised that that wasn't the question. That wasn't, yeah. It was, yeah. yeah. There's a subtext there. Yeah, and they realise they've done something really wrong. Mm. And then, you know, and they come to me and say, you know, I didn't know that that was a different question. <laughs> yeah, there was something else intended by that. Yeah, and that, yeah. yeah, and that leads me on to um, the next and final question, actually, about teaching frameworks. So the whole concept of cultural capital, it's now a requirement uh, within the Ofsted teaching framework, and it requires education providers to give learners the knowledge and cultural capital they need to succeed in life. That was a direct quote from, from oh, their website. Um, and from my understanding, um, in, in sociology, cultural capital is um, everything about, you know, an individual social asset. So for example, their education, their intellect, style of speech, what they wear, 
uh, that promotes social mobility within a society. And I know that historically it was um, developed by this French sociologist called Pierre Bourdieu in the 1970s as a way to sort of explain how power in society worked uh, and how sort of social classes and the hierarchy was maintained and he believed that cultural capital was the basis of social life and dictated people's position within the whole sort of hierarchical order I think that rings very true particularly Mm. for the British class system I mean I personally associate cultural capital with you know who you know not what you know uh, having the right networks knowing the right people a bit of good old-fashioned nepotism really but that's sort of repackaged as like aspiration Um, and I think in some ways it actually polarizes the middle and working classes by equating self-worth with this really idealized way of life and Mm. deviating deviating from that then results in being sort of ostracized and derided I mean what are your thoughts on on that concept of cultural capital well what cultural capital does and Bourdieu argued this perfectly is that it offer it's it's not it's not just things in society, it's things that have got deep values attached to them. Mm. So um, when I was working at the LSE, I was actually working on the Great British Class Survey. And one of the things that we were measuring is cultural capital. Oh, so wow. we were asking yeah. people in the survey, um, you know, things about their cultural life. So it's like, you know, do you go to the opera do you go to the theater do you visit museums and obviously if you did those things you would have you'd score high in having cultural capital yeah good cultural capital Mm. because cultural capital only measures I suppose middle class culture as culture Mm. because what you what we were doing is we were asking questions like you know do you go to opera yes you know do you go to bingo so if you said no but you went to opera it's like you've got more cultural capital Mm. if you said no I don't go to opera but yes I go to bingo it's like a deficit so not Mm. only do you not get the cultural capital you get like points taken off and so this is what cultural capital is it's about valuing cultural life and pursuits in terms of good and bad and worthy and unworthy Mm. uh, valued and value less and in some cases worse than value less because it goes against you know so so at the moment you know you you know if if someone tells you a sort of television program they watch Mm. you know it, it could give you you know if you what if you like uh for example, you know, comedians, for some reason, comedians are like full, full of cultural capital at the moment. <laughs> if you, you know, if you like the right comedian, you know, what's his name? Uh, the, the, you know, the sort of witty, left-wing, sort of dry, Stuart mm. Lee. Yeah. Clever, clever comedian. So if you like him and you find it, you know, and you laugh at his jokes, which actually aren't funny, but it's all—it's almost like a wry sort of knowing laughter, mm. um, you know. If you like that sort of, you've got lots of cultural capital. If you like uh, Mrs. Brown's Boys and you laugh at that, you don't have any cultural capital, and also mm. it goes against you. And so this is what—and and obviously education 
is part of that you know if yeah. you go to you know one of the russell group universities you get points if absolutely you go, yeah you know, if you go to one of the uh ex polys some of them you get some points for some of them you know it counts against yeah um you know having a sociology degree from you know the lse you know that's loads of points that's, yeah you know good but perhaps having a but if you are and it depends again on who you are so you know a middle class man having a degree in sociology from the london school of economics would you know be good for him mm. perhaps a working class woman getting a sociology degree from a you know a, a, one of the sort of post 92 universities it might even be laughed at and seen as you know not a real degree not a real degree yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah and that's because it's it's about the institution but also the person as well so cultural capital it connects with you as an individual as well and that again is you know the, these are really draconian awful and unequal ways it, to judge a person's worth and we do yes and, exactly and really and it's in, about preserving the status quo from from yeah, what i understand and, that, and institutions that do that mm. um that don't challenge it yeah are actually adding, are adding to it so you know if the schools are sort of saying you know i mean this it's always dead easy to do this working class kids need more aspiration you know that's what's wrong with them yes you know it's always, or, yeah yeah you know, or they need they need some more cultural capital how do we do that but what they never do is they never talk about the way that the middle class game the system. So they, they want to do things to the working class. So it's like, let's work on them. They need to be more aspirational. They need to get this. They need to get that. But the middle class are always left alone. They're left and, alone, and, yeah. And they always and then, compete with it. They'll try and out-compete that, wherever it is that, you know. Yeah, but, they, but, they, but they're left alone. So, you know, there's no spotlight on the way that they gain, they're not critiqued in the same way. No, at all. no not not at all. Um, and that again is because the places where these things are supposed to be critiqued, and the places where these things are supposed to be balanced up, you know, policy makers, uh, even you know, in the media and in a, in the universities, are all headed and ran by middle-class people who benefit from that mm. and that's seen so as then, a default way of life to aspire to yeah, so. yeah, you know it's almost like you know you trust in you trust in the people that would if, if we started to critique that class the middle class mm. then we might want to do something about their unfair advantages but we're trusting those people, to be honest, about their situation, which mm. obviously they, you know, quite rightly, they can't do. No, because who wants to say, who wants to say, yeah, I don't deserve to be here, I'll just go. No, no, the middle class will never say that. <laughs> they, they're, they're very well, they're, uh, entitled in, in that but, regard. But they probably, but who mm. would? I mean, it's an impossible situation. Really, it is, because, yeah. Because... You, you know they are in that position mm. and they get to decide whether or not they are honest about that position 
Mm, really interesting yeah cultural capital is one of those things that I think as time goes on hopefully the definition the definition of it will widen and be more inclusive of different types of activities which may may or may not be traditionally deemed you know as a middle class quote-unquote activity like whatever that really means it's about you know having splashing the cash having money but then also in many ways it's not about money it's about the status um and it's also about very soft cultural capital as well it's about yeah sort of knowing sort of insider stuff (laughs) insider knowledge yeah Yeah, and it's about you know it's about knowing what that question means which Mm. school did you go to yeah now that that's again that's a need cultural capital (laughs) to to know what that question means yes (laughs) of course yeah of course yeah and so the thing is it's not just about going right from today going to the opera will not will no longer be as important as going to bingo you know more important mm. it doesn't matter because it's the way that people practice and those questions about which school did you go to will continue you know those assumptions about your accent and how intelligent you are and they will they will continue they will continue whether policy says that they're not good things or not well, it's been a really, really fascinating discussion. Um, I've absolutely loved talking to you and I've learned so much. Um, and that book recommendation, actually, at the end of every episode, I always ask uh, my guests to recommend a book. Um, and I think you recommended a really good book about the history of work, the working class people. Um, yeah. What was the e. name P. of E.P. Thompson, The Making of the English Working Class. Fantastic. It's a very heavy book, but it kind of you know it's still really important it it was written in the 60s Mm, okay uh, and it's about sort of 200 years of history of working class people um but it's it's still important because it shows that there's still a working class struggle that the struggle started this struggle started and then we became a class for ourselves and we're still struggling but class system has become much stronger because we don't see ourselves as a class for ourselves Mm, yeah class struggle is as potent as it's ever been and it's 2021 so I think it it will continue for years to come I don't know anywhere yeah I don't know if we'll ever fizzle out to be honest in our lifetime it's in great shape it's in great shape it really yeah um, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, I really hope that you've enjoyed uh, chatting with me uh, on this podcast. And um, yeah, I hope you have a fantastic rest of the day. Um, and thank you so much, Lisa. No, thank you, Tanya. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for inviting me on. You're very, very welcome. Thank you for your generous time as well. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you know someone who you think might like this podcast, then please let them know about it. If you enjoyed this episode, please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Make sure you hit the subscribe button and you'll be notified as soon as a new episode goes live. Earlier this year, I created a Patreon. I produce and host this podcast entirely on a voluntary basis, all on my own. If you enjoy listening, and have benefited from this podcast, then please consider supporting it so that it can continue to provide you with engaging and meaningful content. I'd also like to take this opportunity to give a shout out to four of my lovely Patreon donors, Abigail, Rihanna and Alicia, as well as my fiance, Nathan. 
Thank you so much to all of you. If you'd also like to donate, you can do so by heading over to patreon.com slash browndon'tfrownpod. If you have any thoughts or comments or would like to get in touch and contribute to the podcast, please drop us a line at browndon'tfrownpod at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, bye.